This morning, as James said, we're going to continue talking about money matters. We've gone through kind of a series uh, called Life Matters, and under each of those, under that bigger title, we've dealt first with marriage matters, then family matters, and now we're talking about money matters. And part of the reason is there's probably, there in fact is, according to those who counsel and work in marriage and family relationships, no bigger issue for conflict in marriage than the issue of money, and more particular where we're going today, the issue of debt. Now, we don't find marriages in conflict over the fact that they have way too much money and they don't know what to spend it on. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the problem. The problem seems to be on the other end of the, the equation where they have more expenses than they have income to deal with and uh, don't quite know how to get freed from that. And usually they may have radically different views on how to resolve that problem. And so what we're trying to do, what I'm going to attempt to do is this establish really kind of a, a biblical basis. What is God's view on this issue of debt? And I find that there is a lot of misconceptions oftentimes about it, and we can take positions or attitudes that create conflicts in the marriage instead of bringing us together on the same page so that we can experience God's grace, His victory, His healing in our life. So if you don't mind, would you turn with me in your Bible, one verse, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. You may remember Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he or she should go, and when they're old, they'll spend you into that. No, they won't turn from it. Uh, and then right after that, he follows with this particular passage. And I'd love for you to stand even though it's one verse, because I know there's a lot of tryptophan in your system after eating all that turkey, and you add to that the crushing defeat of the cougars, and, you know, you may need some energizing here to get you kind of up and going. That didn't crush you? Was I the only one? Anyway. <laughs> but Solomon makes this very simple terse statement. He said, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. And the implication is, the tone is that this is not a great deal. Okay? So let's pray. Father, I ask as we reflect on this verse and many others as they speak to this topic of money and debt, that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and give us a heavenly perspective. We, we often can access men's point of view on this topic, and they're not altogether wrong. But, but Lord, if we don't start with you, the danger is we're going to end up someplace else. So help us to begin with your heart on this topic, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it was Shakespeare in, in, uh, in Hamlet who had Polonius making a, a well-known statement. In fact, you may not know who Shakespeare is, you may not know who Polonius was in Hamlet, but uh, nonetheless, the saying is one that has stuck with us when he said, neither a lender or a borrower be, for the, loan loses bo the loaner loses both and the borrower does ease in his furrows. In other words, in the end, if you, whether you're lending or you're borrowing, you're probably going to be disappointed with the consequences. And so he said, just avoid it completely. Well, it's interesting because uh, this is really one of the most pervasive topics in the Bible and with regards to our lives. Because 
every book, every sermon, every, every counseling seminar, every video or thing you go through, whether it's secular or it's religious, will all have at its heart this injunction from Proverbs 22.7. Basically saying to you, avoid debt at all costs because most of the time it's not going to end up to be a positive in not only your bank account, but in your own personal life experience. And there's nothing, I think, more, more stressful than to be enslaved to debt. And there's certainly this idea that somehow I'll just file bankruptcy and my indebtedness will go away. And those become partial solutions for a short time. But the reality is life is, is full of debts. In fact, when I look at this statement, I think to myself, is this simply an injunction that is a warning against being in debt? Or even some, some say it's a prohibition, a commandment that we should never be in debt, which I don't think it is. Or is it, in fact, nothing more than an observation? In other words, that Solomon is very dispassionately sitting back and say, this is the way it is. The man who is in debt becomes enslaved to the one to whom he or she owes money. And the reason why I ask that is because on one level, debt is an unavoidable reality of life. In fact, before you were ever born, you were born into debt. A, a spiritual debt, of course. It's, in fact, David says in Psalm 51.5, he says, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So like the song we used to sing many years ago, it went like this, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt I did not owe. You see, the Bible actually uses the term debt as explaining what condition we are in when we are born into the world. We are in indebted to God for not only our life, the fact that we're sucking air and we're traversing the terrain of the planet, but we are also indebted to God on a moral and spiritual level. We are born sinners with an inclination that will express itself in behavior as we go through life. We are sinful. And God views that sin as being a debt. In fact, when he speaks about the redemption in Colossians 2, he makes this statement that as we surrender our life to Christ, what happens is he cancels the record of debt. Literally, the, the New, New American Standard Version translates it a, a certificate of debt. It's almost like a bill that God takes. It says, in the, the, the prophet said, there's a handwriting ordinances that was nailed to the cross. What that handwriting ordinance literally translates into is the bill. And when Jesus is on the cross and he says, he utters his last words, tetelestai, the phrase literally means paid in full. So the entire spiritual transaction God speaks of as being the payment of an indebtedness that your soul has to God. Now, the reason why I begin here is because I feel that when we fail to understand that, we really will miss how to effectively manage personal finances. Because as we talked about last week, the Bible really clearly tries to establish first and foremost that God owns everything. It's all His. And it's his to dispense with as he pleases, even though sometimes the way he dispenses our goods isn't according to pleasing our pleasure, yet God wants us to understand it's all his, and that's repeated many, many times. 
But secondly, he wants us to understand that we are people who are in debt to God and that God in his grace and his love and his mercy chose to pay the debt through the death of his son on the cross so that I am basically in a position where I can prosper, which by the way is what's God's will for your life. God wants you to prosper. He wants to see you move forward so that when he says in 2 John uh, 3, 2, or 3 John 3, 2, he says, I pray that your soul will prosper. The word prosper literally means to, to move forward in your business enterprise. Now, some people have taken that and carried it to kind of silly extremes doctrinally, but the whole point is, is that God's will isn't for you to live a life burdened and crushed under the heaviness of indebtedness. His, his, his will is that you feel that freedom. And the problem is, is when we have a lot of debt, what it does is it does rob away our freedom. Not only the peace of mind that we have when we know that we are current in our obligations, but even in sometimes practical ways. There are many people who would love to be used by God in one way or another, but cannot because they're restrained by financial obligations. I'll never forget the young missionary gal or gal who wanted to be a missionary, and she came to me and was all excited about doing going to the mission field. And so as we looked at what it would take for her to live on the mission field, the very first object we came to was her student debt, $50,000 in student debt. And you're sitting there saying, okay, whatever we do, whatever funds we raise, we have to add at least $500 a month to that expense to cover student debt because that's part of your obligation. And that created you and continues to create huge challenges and problems for that young woman as she seeks to do mission work. And so those kind of things may seem, uh, well, that's just the way life is. And we kind of like to blow past them. But really, we are creating barriers that you can say on one hand, well, it gives God a chance to be bigger and greater. And that's certainly true. But Tell me what it feels like the day you pay off a debt. Do you feel like, oh, I just, that was such a great spiritual experience. I'm going to get another one just like it so I can know that. No, you sit there and you praise God, free at last, free at last. Praise God, I am free at last. So we need to understand that God doesn't want you to be burdened by debt. And he portrays it to us in the most obvious way that sin to make it look, to, get, to help us grasp the weight and the burden and the bondage that it creates in our life, describes it as being debt. You owe God this debt. And that's just not to create a theological perspective. It's to get us to emotionally connect with how God feels about debt as a whole. In other words, God hates anything that steals your freedom to live fully for Him. Anything that takes away your freedom to live fully for Him. Now, what I am not saying or even implying here is that you, if you find yourself on the wrong end of the debt dimension or dynamic, that you can't live fully and freely for Christ. But it's important that we understand what God expects of us, how He wants to lead us in that path so that we can experience more of His freedom. You see, because not only do I find myself at birth indebted to God because of my sin nature, I also find that all my life I'm going to be in relationship debt with other people. In fact, 
Again, in Romans 13, 8, he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So that every other debt I'm supposed to strive to retire and pay off, but there's one debt I owe that I can never, ever pay off, and that's my obligation to love you and for you to love me. That's an obligation. That's an indebtedness I have. I, in other words, I don't have any excuse for not paying that toll. <laughs> it's like if you pay a toll to go to work, to get on the freeway, whatever, it's, that's something that's there every time you get on the road, and you are never excused from it. It's part of life that I have a debt to you to love you. Now, granted, sometimes I make that really hard to pay that debt. But nonetheless, it's still an obligation, a responsibility that is there upon us. And if, if those spiritual things of the divine debt that we owe to God or the relational debt we owe to each other isn't enough, there's the last one that none of us can avoid. We're born with it. It's called government debt. You know, a few years, they're estimating it's going to hit $21 trillion. And you ever think about what that translates into? Well, let me tell you, $172,000 for every single one of us. Husband, $171,000. Wife, $171,000. Each of your kids, $171,000. Somewhere on the line, that debt's going to have to be paid. Now, I say that, and I know that some people don't, don't understand that. And I find that we live in a generation that where most people are pretty uninformed about the basics of economics. They haven't been trained uh, how to manage money. They've just kind of grown up spending it. And I'll never forget coming back from overseas one time. I'm in this flight uh, from Seattle into Spokane on, on Alaska Air. And, and I'm sitting across the aisle from this gentleman. And we began conversing. And he asked me if I'm from Spokane. I said, yeah, I've lived here. And he's thinking about moving to Spokane. He's going for a job interview and back and forth. And I said, well, what kind of a job? He said, well, I'm, I'm a lawyer. And I deal with patents. And, and that's my specialty. And, and I'm going to be meeting with these guys. You know who they are? And I said, yeah, I know these guys. I know the firm and so forth. And we're having this conversation. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he says to me, I don't know why people are so worried about the national debt. And I thought, well, this should be interesting. Here's a man with six years of college and, you know, professional career and law and so forth. And I'm sure he's got some insights. And he says, we can just print more money. <laughs> I don't know if my look gave it away. <laughs> like, is this a joke? You're serious. Dead serious. And I realized that, you know, how much education a person has doesn't really guarantee that they're going to really understand some of these things. Because I, I say that for the most part because I know that some of you probably kind of think that way. And it's a way we get into a kind of thinking about money is that, well, the government gets print more money, or I can just borrow more money, or I can consolidate these debts. And you start going through all these different ideas and saying, I don't really have to worry about it, I can manage it, and not realizing that you're in a suck hole that takes you deeper and deeper and deeper. You see, from a, a historical perspective, every major great nation that has collapsed, has collapsed first and foremost financially. 
They've just become, over, their debt load was greater than their, their, the amount of currency they could create, and they just collapsed. And that's when their military begins to fall apart because they can't fund it, and it just kind of cycles from worse to worse to worse. So you have to understand that the debt has its, its natural consequences. In the same way that if you jump off a tall building, there's going to be a natural consequence. Your gravity is going to pull you in one direction and one direction alone. And it's not the direction that you're probably wanting to go. In the same way as with debt. Debt has that same impact. It, it either pulls you down or it pulls you deeper. But it doesn't ever lift you up. Unless your name's Bernie Madoff and you're using other people's monies. But here's... Here's the thing that really makes this all kind of difficult is because debt is integral to living the American way of life. I mean, it's so much so that the average American adult has $11,000. It's the average across from, from my age on down. Uh, you know, $11,000 in student loans, uh, $8,000 they owe on automobiles, $70,000 on their home mortgage, $15,000 in credit card debt, for a ground total of about $104,000. I mean, that's, that's everybody across the board. So some of you are saying, oh, mine's much higher than that. And others of you may be saying, well, that seems rather low. Well, it's because we're dealing with an average here as you spread it out. But living in debt is a thoroughly American way of life. And don't misunderstand me. I am not an anti-debt or loan person because without, the, without credit, you can't function within our economy. And this is where I think some people get into extreme errors. I mean, when they begin to say to people, well, you should never borrow money, uh, they're asking people to really isolate them in such a way that they'll probably never be able to participate in the economy and therefore in the life that other people share in. Because, I mean, I just looked at it from a very practical reason. And <laughs> try and rent a car without a credit card or a hotel room, or to shop on the internet, How, try about purchasing an airline ticket, or purchasing even a home, it requires that you have what we call a credit history, and usually that's generated first and foremost by the way you keep and use a credit card. It's a way that the businesses look at you and say, well, you are a trustworthy individual because we've seen your credit history, and we know that you're somebody who pays back what you borrow. And actually, the Bible even speaks very positively about lending and borrowing at various times. For example, in, in Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8, it says, If there's a poor man among you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed, freely lend him whatever he needs. So here, both the borrower and the lender are being commended by their generosity and their kindness to each other. Uh, in Matthew 5, 42, as Jesus said, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And even Luke goes on to talk about this dynamic in relationship to the non-Christian when he says, but love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them. Now, the only difference in the Old Testament was that if you lent to a brother or to a Hebrew, you couldn't charge them interest. But if you lended to a non-Christian, you could charge them interest. But there were limits on that as well. You see, we all kind of understand, I think would easily agree, that it's always better if you can live free from debt. 
But for most people, that's never been, nor will it ever be, completely possible. For even in Bible times, we find that repeatedly there was these injunctions to give, to be generous, and to be fair in our lending, but to do it also appropriately. Because sometimes you can lend people money and you're only setting them up for failure. You, uh, one time I, I lent money to someone who I knew couldn't repay me. I knew it wasn't going to get repaid. And they made all sorts of promises and so forth and so on. I said, okay. But I felt like God wanted me to. But I was reminded as I lent them the money that it basically Jesus said, give not expecting in return. And God's word was fulfilled in my life in relationship to that moment. <laughs> and finally, you know, they, the person never even came to me and tried to say anything. And finally, I hunted the individual down. And I said, look, I would have appreciated you letting me know. I mean, it's, you should have come and said, I can't afford it or give me time or something. But I just want to let you know, I forgive you. The debt's forgiven. It's just done. Don't worry about it. And uh, I felt released from that. But I think that what, when we get into trouble oftentimes is when we relend to people, and especially a brother or sister in Christ, and we expect to be repaid, and then they don't. Well, what can I say? I've seen it destroy relationships in our church. Because for whatever reason, that person could not or even sometimes would not repay. So that when we talk about this idea of lending, there are two kinds of lending and, and debt servicing that, that the Bible condemns. The first one is that, that the debt the borrower can't repay. Lending money to someone who can't, isn't able to repay the money. Uh, well, in Romans 13, 8, he says, let no debt remain outstanding. So I have an obligation to make sure that if I borrow money, that I am in a position where I can repay it. Grant, we'll talk in a moment about unforeseen circumstances, but nonetheless, there's this full intention that I am going to repay my debt. Part of our witness as believers has to be the fact that our word is our bond, that what we say is what we do, and that we repay what we borrow. If I look at debt and say, I can't repay, I don't think I can repay this, then it's better to just start off by saying, would you give me a gift? <laughs> because I can't repay it. But to make promises that you can't keep sets both of you up for, for struggles and conflicts. I remember years ago when I was on staff down at Calvary and Costa Mesa, and this gentleman came in for a counseling appointment, and he needed money. And the policy of Calvary was that we don't give money out to people who come and ask for it. And so he's sitting at my desk, and here I had in my wallet a brand new $20 bill, which at that point in my life was a pretty unique moment, you know, pretty heady time for me to have a $20 bill. And this guy's asking for your gas, he's asking me for help, and so forth and so on. And on one side of my mind, I'm going, this guy, I don't know what he's going to do with this, but I doubt this is what he's going to do with it. But finally, I felt God said, give him the money. And so I took my money out, and I said, here, here's 20 bucks. And he began to say, thank you, I appreciate that so much. I'll pay you back. I'll be here tomorrow. I'll get it. He's going to find my stuff. He says, hey, just a second. Don't make any promises. I know I'm never going to see you again. So don't promise me that you're going to do something. That's not good for you. That's not good for me. Just take it. And if for some crazy reason you come back, great. But I don't want to labor in my mind thinking about that dirty, rotten scoundrel because that's what happens to us. 
So that when we enter into those kind of dynamics where we have and somebody's asking us to give, there's a responsibility on the part of the giver to not loan money to someone who is just going to deepen the hole that they're already in. You know, that every one of us, when we get in tight financial situations, is looking for an immediate escape. And oftentimes, money is not the answer to their problem. So there's a responsibility not to, to borrow money that we can't repay and don't lend money, secondly, to people who can't afford to be, have the money lended to them. Particularly, what we find is this is how what we call predatory lending actually works. I saw the commercial uh, last week uh, with some company, and I didn't even catch the name of the company, wasn't familiar with it, but they were advertising that you could go in and they would give you $2,000 immediately without any kind of uh, collateral so that you could go and buy Christmas gifts. And as it went on, it says, and only at 9.99% interest. And I thought to myself, how many people will do that not realizing that they're paying an exorbitant amount of interest, which they will regret soon afterwards? You see, this is why the credit card issue has become such a major one in our culture, because credit card tends to put a people in a position where they can borrow money that they can't afford to repay back. And in some ways, it's believed by many that it's actually designed to do that. Why? Have you ever wondered why banks and businesses are so anxious to get you to sign up? I mean, there's some department stores. I go through this gauntlet every time I go in there. And, and I, I, I'm a, my wife's better at cutting them off early than I am. I feel like I politely have to let them get their whole spiel out. And, you know, they, to her, they say, what, do you have one of our... No, no. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I let them go through those people because we'll give you 20% or 30% on your, off on your purchase today. And I, you know, to me, it's like, eh, I can afford that 20 on my Tic Tacs. So, but the whole idea is that they know that if you take their credit card, on average, you will spend 30% more. And it's immediate. You, you'll see people going, well, you mean I can get this? Well, Darn, I, I, excuse me, I'm going to go back and do some more shopping because I saw something there I wanted, but I can't afford, but now I can afford it. And, you know, it's all about just a, it's just a matter of charm when it's, when it's, when it's not real, it's charming. But when the bill comes in, it is no longer something that is charming. It's something that can be uh, difficult. So that, you know, basically, your debt limit will grow almost instantaneously by 30% the minute you begin using the credit card. The only thing I would say, and I use credit cards, I've got a bunch of them, uh, but, I, but we do our credit cards very simply. They are convenience cards. It's convenient for me to use a credit card because we pay it off every month. And we know what we can afford to put on it every month as part of our budget, so we just pay it off. We don't carry balances on our credit card. And the reason we don't is because the balances are very high. On average, the balance on a credit card is, 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 is at 19%. 19%. So that, you know, for those of you who are bad with percentages, you know, that means for every dollar you buy, borrow, you have to pay them back 20 cents. 
approximately. And, and where it really becomes more difficult is when you, when you don't, if you miss a payment, miss one payment on a credit card, and the law says that the credit card then can charge you whatever interest they choose. Although most will stop at 36% interest, 36% interest, so that every dollar you borrow, 36 cents is payment on the interest of that debt. I mean, credit cards love it when you make minimum payments. They love it because that minimum payment that you have to pay will never equal the principal or any, even the interest that's owed, and it just continues to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And we often wonder when people declare bankruptcy, how is it that they are immediately able to get more credit cards and more debt? And the answer is because once you declared it, they got seven years where you can't get out from underneath it. I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's a malicious criminal system that's designed to suck money out of you. And when you realize that the average family has $15,000 in outstanding credit card debt, that it's going to take them 10 years to pay that off. And in that 10 years, they're going to end up having paid around ten dollars to $15,000 additional. So that original $15,000 debt becomes now a $30,000 debt. And then people sit around and say, I don't understand why I don't have any money. It's because you're caught up in a system that is designed to keep you entangled in it forever. This is referred to as predatory and excessive uh, borrowing. And the problem is that our economy is so dependent upon overspending to keep it moving forward that it's willing to do all sorts of things to encourage you, not only to get the card, but then to send you the mailers. I don't know. I, I think I've gotten about 450 of them so far. My, 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 <laughs> my computer is blowing up with deals I can't ignore. They're so good to buy things that I never even realized I needed until I saw them pop up. But they're, they're just, they're, they're following me. You know, they have those algorithms that know what I buy. I, I, I look for something the other day and I get to, I mean, popped up all the time with this product that I just looked and I didn't want. But nonetheless, it gets cheaper every time it pops up. And all I have to do is, well, on my phone, all I got to do is put my thumb on it and it automatically deducts it or adds it to my credit card. Well, I say all that because how, that's how the economy continues to keep on growing because we keep on borrowing to continue to increase it. And this is the ironic part. The income of Americans, the vast majority of us, has not grown in the last 15 years. So our income is flat, but our consumption continues to grow. And as a result, we are as a nation, are in this pattern that, that is destined to implode at some point. The Bible condemns predatory lending. I mean, Proverbs 28, 8 says, you know, he who increases his wealth by exorbitant interest amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. In other words, God says, I will judge the person who does that. And I'll take that money that they do and I'll give it to somebody who will be kind to the poor. Uh, in Ezekiel 18, he says he, about the evil man that he lends usury or interest and takes excessive interest. And he says, will such a man live? And then he goes on to say, he will not. 
And in fact, we find over and over again in the Old Testament, particularly in the Old Testament law, that God instructed the children of Israel through Moses, where he said in Leviticus 25, Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 23, he says, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him, help him so that he can continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. Do not take any interest of any kind from him, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. In other words, Scripture looks at people who are behind the eight ball financially, if you will, who are sinking in debt, and it says, rather than just write them off or ignore them, you need to be able to say, what can I do to help you? And many times what people need more than anything else is not more money to continue because they haven't really changed the habits of consumption and spending, which we'll talk about in a moment here. But what they really need is for somebody to come into their life and say, let's talk about how to get control of your problem. And I think this is, a, this is a very personal thing, but an important thing. Some of you understand everything I'm saying better than I understand it and could add exponentially insights and experiences, and you're disciplined, you got it down. And then there's others of us who were never taught, never trained. In fact, this is the wrap. One of the reasons I'm doing this whole series is because talking about those 88 million millennials out there, what we're finding is no one ever told them about how all of this works. And already many of them are in deep doo-doo. That's a biblical term, by the way. <laughs> I mean, they're in serious trouble. And they're always in this place, already saying, I can't understand why it is I can't get caught up and I can't get on balance. And we find that they're delaying marriage because they know they can't afford to be wed. So this is a serious cultural problem. And I'm not saying this just to uh, affirm the ones who understand these things or to create guilt in those who don't. I'm saying as a community of believers, we really have a responsibility, I believe, in the eyes of God to help each other and to be sensitive to, to one another so that especially those who are in connect groups, great opportunity to sit down and say, how do I get through this? And what are kind of resources that I can begin to tap into to help us crawl out of these things? Because believe me, my wife and I have been in that hole where you're just looking up and going, I don't know how we're going to get out of it. And to be quite honest, you know how we got out of it? My dad said, this was bad. <laughs> Here's money. Pay off all these debts and don't ever do that ever again. And we didn't. We just learned the lesson the hard way. So I'm not saying that you know, we're, we're, we're not aware of how these things do. But there's something that is a little bit another layer I need to put in here to help you understand is that when we talk about debt, there's, not, there's, uh, there's certain debts that's reasonable and, and because it's, it's temporary and it, and it helps you to enhance your position in life. And there's other debts that is not reasonable. We make the distinction between what we call secured and in unsecured debt. Um, what is a, a secure debt? Well, a secure debt means that you have purchased something that is a fixed asset that if you were to sell that thing, you could recoup your loss or at least extinguish your debt. Houses, for example, are good examples of that, <laughs> generally speaking, unless you bought in 2007 or 6. Uh, 
Some of you are in that space. You bought during that time and you got in really low and you didn't have to put much down and now your house is upside down and you're paying more for your house than you can ever sell your house. There's a lot of people like that. A lot of people I know who just simply walked away. This is the second time in my lifetime I've seen people walk away from houses. I remember some of you remember back in the 70s when the interest rates were hitting 18 and 21% on adjustable rate mortgages and people just walked away from it. It's good that we learned that lesson and didn't repeat it in 2007. Oh, yes, we did, didn't we? But basically, a secure debt is on something. If you, if you buy a car and then you can't make the payment, it'll hurt your, probably your, your credit history, but the car goes back to the dealer, the debt is done, and you can at least start over again. Those are debts that are secured by something that is solid, that is, is worth something. Where people mostly get in trouble, though, is in unsecured debt. We call it consumer debt. And... This is money that you borrow for purchases of things you consume. You use your credit card to buy your clothing, to buy your food, to, to take vacations that aren't in the budget. Well, we don't have the budget. We'll just put it on the credit card. And we buy other trinkets and other things of that nature. Um, whatever, even buying jewelry or watches and things that you think are valuable, you realize that when you buy them and then you go back to sell them, somehow they have depreciated in value. Much like your car driving it off the lot. There's so much to this that I don't have time to go into. But the whole point is, the value that you saw in that object was consumed by you through your purchase. And that's, that's the end of the deal. So that you realize that something is only worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. And if not, somebody's not willing to pay what you paid for it, it's not worth anything. My wife and I have a, this old gramophone that was given to us by her folks many years ago. And an old Wurlitzer gramophone. It's so cool. And it has all these old records, old 78s in it. So last night, my, my son's visiting us. And so we, we're getting these out and cranking these up. And he's, he's looking at them. We've never looked at the records. And we're finding all these cool records. I mean, all the Gene Autry. We've got Johnny Cash, his original release of I Walk the Line. And we're putting this on and playing this. And, and you know, we're thinking about, man, this has got to be worth something. And so I thought, yes, an original Sun record with Johnny Cash, I'll Walk the Line, first release. This has got to be worth a fortune. And so I went online to see what kind of a treasure I was holding in my hands. And I was blown away. Do you know that some people were paying as many as $27 for that? <laughs> I can't even take my wife out to dinner for that. So it's like, but we, you know, it's, it's, it's the reality is it's only, it's only what somebody is willing to pay for it. And sometimes we can, we can deceive ourselves in thinking something is, is, is far more valuable. But once the goods are gone, what happens is that the debt remains, but the debt not only remains, and if you don't pay it off, it, it continues to grow because the interest on what is owed is added to the balance as long as the balance remains unpaid. And that's where people many times get drowned in debt or literally buried in debt because the debt is growing faster than they can address it. Now, the good news is that there's always a way out. In the same way that God looked at this impossible debt of my sin that I could never hope to ever pay, 
He also does the same for you and me. As I mentioned before, in, in 3 John uh, 2, he says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health and just as your soul prospers. And the word prosper in one lexicon is simply translated to succeed in business affairs. That I do believe he wants us to be financially successful. I do believe it's a good thing to want a home that, and, and, and all those kinds of things, to want a decent car and, and to be able to afford health insurance and all those kinds of things that are essential to really living well and healthily and, and to say, God has prospered my life. So I don't want to give, cast this kind of negative pale over those kind of things. And those things for the reality is, I could never afford to buy a house if I hadn't been able to borrow money from the bank. But I had to decide how much of a house can I afford to buy on my income? Because there was a point where they're saying, hey, 100% financing and we'll worry about that down the road, adjustable rate mortgage, we'll do all this stuff. And you know, and, and for whatever reasons, I was smart enough as a kid to look at that and go, you know what? If anything goes south on this thing, we'll lose everything. And God was gracious to us. But I would simply say that you have to begin first and foremost by being honest with yourself when it comes to debt. And what I mean by that is you have to ask yourself the question, am I addicted to the euphoria of spending money? Has going shopping become a mood elevator for me? A lot of people fall into this. It's like, ah, I'm, uh, I'm depressed. Let's go to the mall. I'm depressed. Let's go to the mall. And they buy stuff that they don't need. I mean, really, I, I sit there and go, how many shirts do I need? <laughs> how many pairs of pants? I mean, at some point, you, you, you know, but we can fall into this where we become people who are basically idolaters. We're looking at the acquisition of things to make us feel better about ourselves. You know, it's kind of the, there's a thrill the first time you buy a house. It's, it's such a thrill to own your first home. And then you realize that there's a whole bunch of responsibilities and expenses that come with owning your home that you didn't anticipate. So that those things become disappointments. And we become addicted to that, that, that euphoria, that feeling that we have of, oh, it's so great. It's so wonderful. That's why someone once said, we celebrate Christmas as if it's our birthday, not Jesus's. And we go deep into debt many times, spending money that we can't afford to spend because we want to give our kids this special Christmas. And the media and the marketing out there helps us in that guilt process. Don't you want to show your kids this wonderful Christmas? Yes, but not a $396 electronic chariot. although I've been tempted. <laughs> it's tough being a grandparent, you know? You lie, cheat, and spend money you don't have just because you... Anyway. But secondly, there's also the issue of peer pressure, trying to live the same lifestyle of those who are around you, even though you don't make the kind of money that they do. And that's really just being driven by a kind of envy. I want to keep up with my neighbors. I want to impress them that I have the same status that they have. Or thirdly, you want to just simply uh, impress others that, that you're the big spender. You fake it till you make it. And it becomes an issue of pride. I know someone, a family member, actually another state, but gets in an auto accident, 
has a settlement for $100,000, the first thing he does is go out and buy a $70,000 SUV. Beautiful vehicle, pays cash. And then he loses his job. And he turns around having to sell that $70,000 SUV for $30,000. And, you know, um, that was a pretty expensive six-month ride. <laughs> he, for a lot cheaper, he could have just hired a limo, <laughs> had them take him everywhere every day. But it's those kind of decisions that you make that not really just wanting to be able to say, well, the explanation was I always wanted to be able to go in there and just lay cash down. And the guy who sold it to him was just happy that you came in and laid that cash. You made his day, <laughs> maybe even his whole year, but yours is wrecked because of that impetuous choice. How about beginning with really a couple of simple rules? The first one is that you make a budget, which means you don't exceed your income. You live on what you have. Now, next week I want to talk about this more in detail, so I don't want to shoot off all my rockets here because I don't got a lot. But secondly, it's more emotional. You need to take control of your impulses because the first thing that happens when you create a budget is you realize there are certain essentials that aren't so essential. <laughs> and when I try to explain this to my kids, saying, well, I just, I just need to have so much money to afford the, the cell phone plan. And they have to be smartphones with, you know, how many gigs. And they have to be, and I have to have this kind of a vehicle. And I have to have, and they start, what they think are minimum requirements for survival on the planet Earth you know, my wife and I, we got married, and we walked, and when we wanted to communicate, we beat rocks together, you know? <laughs> it was like, it was pretty simple, <laughs> and it didn't take much. I mean, we could live on the dollar an hour I was getting paid. Not well, you know, but poverty isn't all that bad. It's, it's inconvenient frequently. I'll say that poverty is inconvenient, but it's not as devastating to you as you might think. In fact, you might find, as James said, the poor of this world are rich in faith towards God. My wife and I developed our prayer uh, life around asking God to give us the things that we needed. I mean, when you're talking about God provide our daily bread. And seeing God do that, you become much richer in faith and you realize that, you know, and we've looked back over the years and say, you know, we live so far beyond our, our income and you are, yet we're not in debt. How does that work? How is it that we can have so much and yet not have any debt? And it's simply by honoring God that you realize that you are to be controlled by the Spirit. We have these simple little principles. When we want to buy something, we walk away from it. Because if it's God's will for me to have that, it'll be there when I come back. Just because it's a great deal right now. And it's like the guy was trying to sell the church one time, a, a, a copier. And, and he came in, a guy from the church says, I, I got this copier, I'll let you have this deal. In fact, he says, I tell you what, I'll, I'll take 20% off the top and give it to you for this price. And I just said, well, thanks, I appreciate that. But I couldn't buy something like that without first praying about it and asking the Lord if this is what He wants. And so he says, oh, okay, and he leaves. And a few minutes later, I get a call back, and he says, hey, I tell you what, I'll give you another 20% off if you'll pray about it right now. <laughs> right away, I knew, this isn't how God does business. <laughs> you know, because, I, I mean, and we didn't buy it, but because it just wasn't, it wasn't the way that God does stuff. But there are times where you get in this pressure to buy something when you need to really recognize if that is something that God has for you, 
He'll give it to you. It'll come in its own time. You don't have to go out there and, and, and hustle and, and make it happen. That um, we need to learn how to buy less but buy better. That we don't win by having more. That quality is more important than the quantity of what we do. And, and developing a, a value that we were taught as kids called deferred gratification. You put it off until you can afford to do it. And you don't, because what happens is you end up defining yourself by what you acquire instead of being defined, defining yourself by the God who has acquired you. You are still his slave. You are still his property. And it is still his stuff. And you have to be asking that question, God, what is your will? What is it that you want? And let me throw in here one last thing in the, in the last few minutes that I no longer have. And I, I just throw this in, not to create pressure on people, but just to put some perspective on student loans. If I were to ask you, what area of the economy has seen the greatest level of inflation since the year 2000? Uh, I wonder what you would say. We would say things with the cost of medicine, medical costs. Uh, we would say the cost of food or transportation. And, and all those things have gone up. But, you know... <laughs> The one thing that has increased and in had the greatest inflation rate, over 300% increase in cost since 2000, are college tuitions. And it isn't because the schools have become so much better or better academically. They've become, they've expanded dramatically in terms of administration and sports programs. So that we now have college athletes, college coaches who are getting paid millions of dollars to produce a, a winning program, which will be discussed all this next week. And where does that money come from? It comes from the government, but it comes from the government by you as a student saying, I want to go to this college. And, and there's no question. There's nobody sitting back saying, well, do you really think that that's going to pay off for you if you borrow that much money? Uh, I mean, how's that going to translate? Because there's this promise made out there, which isn't true, that if you get a college degree, you will become X number of dollars, you'll make this much more income. And that's true of certain, what they call the STEM fields, science, technology, medicine, engineering. Yeah, chances are really good that you're going to make more money, but you should never borrow your student loan more than you know that you're going to make annually. Your total student loan should never be in excess of what you know your annual income is going to be. So that what happens to many college students is they borrow this large amount of money, they go through their college education, and when they finish, they have an excellent GPA in an area that there are no jobs. I'll give you a case in point. I was listening to an NPR radio one day as I was driving home, and uh, uh, you know, some of you are saying NPR, aren't those guys kind of liberal? Yeah, the National Republican Radio. No, <laughs> I was listening, I like it, I really like it. I was listening to them and the guy was, they were talking about student loans and the debt student loans because it's, it's well over uh, like one and a half trillion dollars that students own right now. And that's why it was a big issue with Bernie Sanders and, and lately Hillary Clinton because they have all these young people, millennials, who are burdened by this excessive debt and, and they felt free to get out there and just lie to them and tell them they were going to pay all of that off and it was all going to go away, which just everybody knew wasn't going to happen. At least everybody who's an adult knows it wasn't going to happen. 
But the thing that, that really struck me is as they were listening, this guy was talking about the problem, and this young woman calls in, and she says, um, I just wonder if you can advise me. And he says, okay, what is it? And he says, well, she said, I, I got a four-year degree in English Lit. I'm a majoring in poetry. And when I got out, I couldn't find a job. So I started a dog walking service, and, and uh, I, I was able to support myself, but I wasn't able to pay off any of my student loans. And so she said, I thought, well, maybe I'll go back and get a master's. So she borrowed some more money, and she went back, and now she got a master's degree in English Lit uh, with a focus on, on poetry. And she said, uh, that's where I'm at. And he says, well, what are you doing now? And she said, well, I started my dog walking service again because I didn't, can't find a job, and I'm not making enough money to, to pay off my student loans. I just make enough to survive. And he says, okay, well, what's your question for me? She said, should I go on and get a doctorate? And the guy's response was, young lady, the best poets in history never went to college. So, I mean, this is the kind of dynamic where I find so many young people are in today. They're, they're, and I think as parents, you need to be really thinking about your child says, well, I want to go to college and I got to make sure my kids go to college. You need to make sure that they're going to be studying something that's actually going to provide them with an income. And that the amount they borrow is commensurate with the amount of income that they can project that they'll make over the life of their career. Because, I mean, even amongst our own staff, we have, some of them are sitting down saying, you know, half our income goes to paying student loans. You realize, this is oppressive. And I would love it if our government would find out a way to take care of it. But you know what happened? Last time Congress addressed this issue, they reduced the interest rate for student loans to try to give relief to students. And you know what happened? The universities raised the cost of tuition. So it took more money. So it's, you know, it's, there's, a, there's something that has to give there. Now, that's another, some of you may want to turn that into a social crusade. I think that Bernie Sanders was identifying the issue properly. I don't think his solution was going to work unless, of course, we knew his whole plan, which was to eliminate the military completely. But the whole point was that it's, it, it, it's these kind of things that are creating a crushing effect upon not only the parents, because sometimes the parents find that they're inheriting that debt from their kids when their kids default because they co-signed. And they're having to carry the debt. So many people are not being able to retire because of student debts that their kids, and they're lovingly saying, I'm willing to do this for my kids. I love my kids. But, you know, um, too many times when we look at our kids' diploma, it says they graduated from the University of Yugo. Um, and if you ever owned a Yugo, you know you always bought them in twos because you needed the spare parts. <laughs> and it's, it's not going to get you where you want to be. So that's what I have to say about that. I'll stop. And I'm, some of you look like you're in pain right now. So. <laughs> Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would bring us to that, that place of, of brokenness and humility in our hearts, Lord, where we recognize that oftentimes just out of ignorance or sometimes out of willful disobedience, we can get ourselves into financial straits that are strangling us. 
There are many of us who are just literally barely keeping our heads above water and may not even understand what's happened to them. Lord, I pray, and there's some who see it all just on the verge of disappearing. I pray, God, in the name of Jesus, that you would just not only fill us with hope, but open our minds and saying, God, teach me and show me your ways. I pray that you'd bring into their life other men and women who could guide and counsel them, that you would help them get connected with the right kinds of resources that could make a difference. Lord, that we could be discipled and shepherded out of these situations, just as my wife and I discovered that if we were able to apply disciplines to our lives and self-control, we would be able to get free from these things and change and, and, and live free. So God, I pray for that, that grace, Lord, that uh, we might not only prosper in our souls and prosper in our health, but we would prosper in the material things of this world, Lord. Not that we be so rich that we can boast, but the simple fact is we know that there's stability in our life. Pray, God, that you'd grant us that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue on, we invite you to partake of the elements from the Lord's table. We invite you to really reflect upon this time that we've spent. I, I trust that if God has spoken to you, that there's a response in your heart. Or maybe you need more. Maybe you would just like prayer. Or maybe you're in a difficult place right now. You're pretty slammed and you're overwhelmed. We just love to pray for you. Maybe the debt of sin has never been paid for you because you've never asked Jesus into your heart. And for many of us, that's the place to start. That's where real victory. Because you see, no matter how deep a mess we get ourselves in, and you and I, we get ourselves in pretty deep messes, God is powerful. How powerful? He spoke the universe into existence in a millisecond of time with a word. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And so when you're looking at, whether you're looking at a health issue in your life or you're looking at a financial issue in your life or a relationship issue, God has that power to speak into your situation in a moment and transform it completely. But we have to begin in that place of humble submission and honesty and say, Lord, I need your help. I need the miracle of your grace to move in my life before that change begins to really take place. So I encourage you, invite him to come in and fix and change the things that steal your joy, steal your blessing, steal your prosperity, and keep you from experiencing all that God has for you.